Thank you again, choir, for being here today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? I was talking with Dr. Dunn uh, on Wednesday night, and he said, you know, there's nothing like the real thing. <laughs> there's nothing like being there in person. We've got a good crowd here today. Uh, Ron Lannis said, it's great to see so many faces back with us, so many people who uh, have been gone for a long time. And I'm thankful to God for the, the miracles of modern science and medicine that have uh, enabled people to, to begin gathering a little more safely, and um, just I'm so grateful to our doctors and our medical community and people who developed the vaccine and who are distributing the vaccine. You guys are heroes, so thank you. I'm so grateful, again, uh, to have Dr. Sherman with us last week. What a, a masterful exposition of Isaiah 6. I kept thinking the whole time, man, I don't want to follow that guy uh, next week. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I jumped on some Zoom classes today, and everybody asked me, are you going to quote some poetry today from memory? And I said, no, I'm not, and neither am I going to sing either. So y'all can just forget that. But I'm so grateful again that uh, the, the gracious uh, response that, that he would come and share with us a, a beautiful uh, word about Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord. He had an encounter with God. He saw the high and holy God, high and lifted up. And then he saw himself. He saw that he was a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And the Lord responded and sent an angel to cleanse him with that burning coal. And then Isaiah responded, here am I, Lord, send me. And then a passage that I usually skip over or don't deal with, but those verses 9 to 13, I love how Dr. Sherman put it. Isaiah saw God, he saw himself, and then he saw the world. He wasn't just cleansed so he could say, well, I feel better about myself. He was cleansed so he could go running to the world with a message, a message of what God wanted to do through his grace. But that message wasn't received, was it? And therefore, God's judgment comes upon his people. What we're seeing is that Isaiah's encounter with the living God changed everything. He was transformed by God's grace, his gracious healing of his sin. He'd been cleansed by God's grace. He'd been commissioned and sent out by God's grace. Isaiah's heart had been filled with God's grace. Dr. Sherman used one of my favorite quotes from a prayer by St. Augustine. Our, it says, you have made us for ourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts determine our destiny. Our hearts determine our destiny. Our entire lives are spent chasing after the things which our hearts are set on. The problem is that, as John Calvin put it, our hearts are idle factories, just churning out counterfeit gods, one after the other, that all leave us unsatisfied restless, leaving our hearts empty because nothing can fill our hearts except for the one who is supreme. Therefore, our hearts are divided. Even as Christians, right, we're tempted to go after God and something else. Our hearts are divided, which leaves us in this tug of war that's exhausting. It's not a good place to be with a divided heart. But after Isaiah's encounter with God, his heart was united. God had given him a fully united heart, totally 100% set on God, sold out for God in his mission. But today in Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to meet another man, a man who 
had a, a very much divided heart. You're going to see King Ahaz, the king of Judah. There's a stark contrast between the prophet Isaiah and between the king of Judah, Ahaz. Isaiah has a sense of God's glory and God's greatness in his heart because he had had a genuine encounter with the living God. That's what Dr. Sherman was saying last week. Ahaz had not had that kind of encounter. He didn't have that sense of God's glory and goodness and greatness. And that's what Augustine was talking about. When you have that sense of who God is, then our hearts are resting in the only one who can supremely satisfy. Christianity isn't about, it was never about, you know, being good so you can go to heaven. It was never about following the rules so you can, you know, be right with God and go to heaven. It was, it was never about taking on the world as the hero in your own story. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure story here. That's not what our lives are. Christianity is about being convinced that nothing is greater, that nothing is more satisfying, that nothing is higher, nothing is more beautiful than the triune God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Christianity is about being so captivated by the perfect glory of God that you surrender all that you are and you say, here am I, send me, like Isaiah did. But we're going to see in this text today a man who's not convinced, he's not there. His heart's affection and therefore his mind's attention are both fixed on earthly things, on the pressing matters of this world. Because Ahaz doesn't believe that the Lord God is the ultimate, is the, the fount of every blessing, is the Alpha and the Omega, he's going to ha have his head in the sand and be blind to the spiritual reality around him and therefore becomes a sad footnote in the history of Judah. Ahaz forgot his first love. He has no sense of the goodness of the glory of God in his heart. And the sad thing is that the people that he leads in Judah are following him. They look to him as their leader and they too have lost that sense of who God is. So throughout this series in the month of March, we're going to see how darkness just covers all the people who are stuck in that divided heart, unbelieving mode. But we're also going to see that God is faithful and that he promises that in spite of our failure, his great grace is going to triumph in the end. That his light will not fail and no amount of darkness can hide it. A rescuer is promised. Even as the kingdoms of Judah and Israel fail time and time again, the Lord remains a light in the dark. He's going to send a Messiah an anointed one who's going to be with God's people in a whole new kind of way, a way that's never been thought of before, a way that, that ushers in a whole new era and provides a way for us to be humans in a whole different kind of light. God's grace is going to prevail over the darkness in the end, no matter how dark it gets. So let me set up this section of Isaiah with a little history lesson, okay? We saw last week that uh, Isaiah was commissioned. He was sent out by God in the year that what? That King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a good king. That was around 740 
B.C., okay, in the, the kingdom of Judah. Our Old Testament timeline real quick. Moses, we think, was around 1500 B.C., maybe 1300 B.C., depending on which scholars you're listening to. But then we know that, uh, you know, God's people were led out of Egypt, that they wandered in the, the desert, that they entered into Canaan, that God drove out the Canaanites before them, that they had this time period of the judges. That's where you get like Samson and Deborah and you get all these great stories about God's people. And God was their king, but they wanted a real person king. They didn't want a God king. And so finally in 1040 BC, God said, fine, you get Saul. Saul was not a great king, but the people wanted a person on the throne. And Saul was over all the kingdom of Israel. And then we know that, that God rejected Saul and he sent Samuel to anoint young David. And at the age of 40, uh, 30, David was anointed as king in 1010 BC. And he ruled for 40 years. He died when he was 70. And then we know that in 970 BC, that that's when his son Solomon took over. Now, most of you know that Solomon was wise. We're taught that as kids in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, that Solomon asked for wisdom and he was wise. But the rest of the story of Solomon is a disaster. He, he ended up really wrecking the kingdom. He was stockpiling women, gold, weapons. He basically became an arms dealer in the ancient Near East. He, he rejected what God intended for a king to be. And the kingdom was never the same after that. So 1,500 Moses, 1,000 is the united kingdom, we call that, of Israel, about 100 years from 1040 to 940 B.C., or, or give or take a few years on either end. And that leads to this big split. There's 12 tribes in Israel, right? Ten of the tribes basically seceded from Jerusalem, from the temple, from the Davidic line, from the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin that stayed in the south, and they went north, and they called themselves Israel. Let's look at these maps. Miles is back with us today, my buddy Miles Hutcherson. Thank you, Miles, for running the slides today. Uh, Syria is up here in the north, and you get Israel and Judah here. So the kingdom splits into two. You have Israel, whose capital city was Samaria, right in the middle. And then you have Judah, which has Jerusalem still as their capital city. Uh, this is basically 10 tribes that go this way. All their kings were bad. Uh, about half the kings in Judah were, were good and bad. Uh, but all the, the kings in Israel were, were just terrible kings who rejected God's law and God's ways, okay? So you see that we're about 200 years now into this divided kingdom once we get to our story in Isaiah chapter 7 today. It's been this dysfunctional split for 200 years by the time we get to 735 BC, which is where we are in our story today in Isaiah chapter seven. Assyria is quickly becoming the dominant power of the entire region. It's the looming crisis, it's the crisis over the entire book of Isaiah, really. Let's go to the next slide there, uh, Miles. Go to the next one. You see the, the Assyrian threat growing out of where Babylon ends up, you know, taking over Assyria eventually. But Assyria was ruthless. They had this king named Tiglath-Pileser, and they were just conquering everybody in the entire Fertile Crescent. That's the Fertile Crescent you may remember from high school history. And they just took over from all the way to the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Ur. They, they conquered the entire region. And they were threatening over these little kingdoms 
over here in, that we just saw in Palestine. So the little kingdom started to make alliances and said, we got to get together and fight the Assyrians. So Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, which is the kingdom just above them, go back one, Miles. They became in this alliance. They said, we're going to join forces against the Assyrians. And the king of Israel told the king Ahaz, king of Judah, you got to join with us in this alliance. And Ahaz was like, ah, I don't know about that. I'm not, not really feeling that. And so they said, look, if you don't join us, Syria and, and us are going to attack you and force you to join our alliance. We're going to come and attack you. But remember, God had made a covenant 300 years before this with King David. What did he tell him? He said, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever, and the scepter will not depart from your line. Remember that? Ahaz didn't remember that. Ahaz had forgotten the covenant that God had made with the Davidic kings of Judah. So he's faced with this looming threat of Israel and Syria coming to attack him, and he panics. He freaks out. We're all going to face crises in our lives at some point, right? We have all have gone through crises. Crises are an inevitable part of our existence here. And so sooner or later, we're forced to ask ourselves, do I really believe that God is real, that his promises are true, that he will deliver me? Do I actually trust that no matter what happens in this crisis, I'm going to be okay? Because my God is real and he's powerful and he's true. He's faithful to all of his promises, which are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do we really believe that? You know, our answer to that question is either going to be an agonized struggle back and forth, the result of a divided heart, or our answer is going to be yes, absolutely. I believe that with all my heart. The extended lesson in this passage is that when God's people don't trust him as they should, they, they pay the price. Suffering, disaster, ruin are the results of not putting our faith in the one who is faithful. So we're going to divide this text about Judah into two weeks, and we'll finish it next week. And today we're going to be faced with a decision. Do we trust God or not? Is God still present with us in our crises? Does he really want to rescue us rather than punish us? We all have a decision to make, just like Ahaz. Will we believe that God's true or not? That's our first section in this passage. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, that's the Judah people, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel, the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified. They, they, they crunched the numbers. Some of you are accountants and they crunched the numbers and they said, it doesn't add up. We're going to lose. We're going to die. We're going to get completely destroyed by Syria and Israel together. There's no way we can take them. But the Lord uses this crisis, as he often does in our lives, to get Ahaz to open 
his panicked little eyes to the reality of what God was doing, of what God had promised. Look at verse 3. He sends Isaiah, the prophet, directly to the king to address him and to strengthen him and to comfort him. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. The commentaries tell us that, you know, Ahaz isn't out for a swim. He's checking the water supplies. He's looking to see how long Jerusalem can hold out against Israel and Syria together. He's not thinking in God's terms. He's thinking in Solomon's terms of stockpiling. He's looking to earthly means in order to save his people. He's inspecting the water supply of the city. But God wants to show him grace, so he sends the prophet and his son to deliver this message. You may see in your Bible the, the notes here that the name Shear Jeshub means a remnant shall return. I'm sure Isaiah was introducing his son to the king. Oh, hey, King Ahaz, this is my boy. Uh, a remnant shall return. What God was doing in that moment is showing Ahaz that no matter how bad it gets, I'm in charge, I have a plan, and it's going to be okay. Don't panic. Don't panic. Look at verse 4. The message that God has for Ahaz is one of confidence. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. That could be the whole sermon right there, right? The message that Isaiah has for Ahaz is be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. I don't know about you, but in a crisis, I try to talk my way out of it. I'm a, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I like to use my words. God says, be quiet. Let me do my thing. Trust in me. Be careful and don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, Israel and Syria, at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Ramalia. He's basically saying these two burned out countries are, are already spent. They're not worth anything. They're not able to destroy you, even though they have bigger numbers. You're going to be fine. God's graciously offering Ahaz a chance to be delivered by God's mighty hand. The only way that any of us are delivered by God's good grace, by faith in a good God. By grace through faith is how we are saved. He's saying, you don't have to be like these other two countries scrambling around trying to play some worldly political power game. But if Ahaz listened to that message, that means he would have to do things God's way. He would have to put his trust in God. He'd have to take a leap of faith. At the end of verse 9, God explains what's at stake here. At the end of verse 9, he says, If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The Hebrew wordplay, commentators try to get at what he's saying there. Hold God in doubt and you'll not hold out. If you're unsure, you're insecure. God literally says to Ahaz, if you don't firm up, you'll not be confirmed. He's saying you'll live by faith or you won't live at all. 
But if you do want my support, all you have to do is lean on me. Just trust me. You know, God is attracted to weakness. He's attracted to our need, to our emptiness. The poor in spirit are blessed. They're happy because those are the ones that God receives. He's attracted to our honesty, but he's repelled by our pride and our determination to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You can't do that. Verse 9 makes faith in God the central, unavoidable question of our lives. Will we put our faith in God or not? What is faith in God? That's one of those church kind of words that we use a lot, but what are we talking about here? I love how Ray Ortland says in his commentary, what is faith in God? First, it's a knowledge of God. It's to know God and his goodness, to know his character, to know what he's like, and then to agree with God. Once we know God, that persuades us to agree with him because we see that he is supremely good. If we really know God, then we know that he's the best thing ever, which persuades us to agree that his ways are best which then motivates us to embrace God and his ways. That it's actually better to really put ourselves into his hands than try to do it ourselves. That's a very counter-cultural argument. Faith, says Ortland, is the God-awakened capacity to respond fully to Christ. The God-awakened capacity to respond fully to Christ. But we live in a fallen world, right? That's always competing for our allegiance. That's why our hearts are always going after other things. Because this world is bombarding us with messages that we should be chasing after. That we should put our faith in our own ability to provide for ourselves. That we should put our faith in our status. That I should put my faith in my own talent or abilities or intellect. That I should put my faith in my own carefully crafted identity as portrayed on my social media accounts. You may follow me. And <laughs> Inevitably, though, faith in those things lets you down. How could it not? Those are fleeting worldly things. They're not ultimate things. Only faith in the most powerful, most supreme, most good being in all the universe will lead to flourishing. If we're not firm in faith in the triune God, then we're not firm in any aspect of our lives. Our divided hearts continue to crank out those idols and our lives are directed towards counterfeit gods. Living by faith is it's not something you just wake up doing when you become a Christian. It's a skill. It's honed. We have a lot of musicians here. I know you guys have honed your skills at being able to do. I saw Savannah Royston play four classical pieces on this piano yesterday from memory. It was incredible. She's honed that skill of hours and hours of practice. Faith, living by faith is a skill like that. It takes a lot of practice to hone it. Conversion to Christ is just the beginning. As part of our discipleship journey, we learn how to trust on God, how to lean on him in everything. I'm not going to sing it, but the old hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've what? Proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for what? Grace to trust him more. That's what we're learning it's one thing to trust him when things are going well. 
It's another thing in the crises of life to fully put our trust in God. It's in those crises that God is really taking the training wheels off of our faith, right? And he's teaching us to ride like the big kids. He's saying, here we go. Buckle up. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> this is where it gets real. So God sent Isaiah to comfort and strengthen Ahaz in his faith. So he was confronted with a decision. Would he trust in God or not? Look at verse 10 to 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale, that's hell, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. God is being so unbelievably gracious. He's, he's not even asking Ahaz to take some irrational leap of faith. He's saying, look, here's what I'll do, Ahaz. Give me a, a test, and I'll show you that I'm real, that I'm good. It's like God hands Ahaz a blank check, and Ahaz refuses to cash it. Why? Because he doesn't want to believe God's ways. He doesn't want to trust God. That's the problem. So he tries to counter with a Jesus juke. We call that when you're being super spiritual. He tries to quote from Deuteronomy and say, oh, I will not put God to the test. God's word says not to do that. But God sees right through the hypocrisy, of course. Back in verse 11, Isaiah said to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. But then look at Isaiah's anguish now in verse 13. He said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In just two verses, he's gone from your God, your good father who loves you and would do anything for you to now saying, yeah, my God is not your God. You're not following the same person I'm following. And your opportunity has passed. He's now my God. And it's not going to end well for Ahaz. So God now decides to, to do his own thing, to send his own sign in his own way. And it's not bolts of lightning that are consuming the Syrian army. Ahaz would have loved that. But God's way of rescue is different. Look at verse 14. You may have heard this before. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isn't it great to hear the context of that verse? Isaiah chapter 8 makes it clear that this verse was actually fulfilled partially through Isaiah's own son. He would have a son, and that son would be a sign of the impending doom of the Israel and Syria uh, unity, the, 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 the group that's coming against them. But it would be, of course, fully fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, the fullest expression of Emmanuel, God with us. Remember what the angel told Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1? Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Crises will come, but our God promises never to leave us or forsake us. And the ultimate crisis that we all face is our own sin, is the sin that indwells our fallen flesh. But God didn't leave us to deal with that sin on our own, but came to rescue us. 
the decision that confronts us then each day is, am I trusting in God's incarnational grace that has come to me through Jesus Christ, or am I trusting in my own flesh? Am I banking everything on him to save me, to deliver me, or am I still holding part of my heart back? We're going to see how the, the wrong decision carries consequences. God's judgment comes on Judah. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Raisin and the son of Remalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. God's judgment will come not only to Israel, but to Judah eventually as well, because they chose their own way over God's way. Yes, Ahaz and Judah are spared from Assyria this time, but they're not going to last long. The unbelief of God's people will eventually lead them all to this fate of being led away with hooks in their ears and their noses to be slaves in a pagan foreign land because they refused to trust in him. But a remnant would return. And from that remnant, a branch would shoot out of the stump of Jesse, the stump of David's line. God would show up in Judah in a way that no one would expect. A virgin would give birth in a manger. That baby would grow up to carry the sins of the world upon his shoulders. He would conquer death and sin forever by rising again from the grave because he was uniquely the savior of the world. So what are we going to do today with the decision before us? Are we going to trust in God, staking our lives on him, betting everything on him, believing that no matter what comes, what crises we may endure, he will deliver us? Or are we going to scramble around like people in this world, panicked, trying to cobble together some semblance of what we believe to be the good life? The way to experience the saving presence of God each and every day is to say yes to the improbable ways of God, to trust that his ways are better, to stop trying to save ourselves. So let me give you this advice. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be divided or faint. God is with us. That's more than a name. He's a reality. Emmanuel, when you lean on him as your reality, what more do you need? There's a singer-songwriter here in Nashville named Sandra McCracken. Went through a really dark time in her life. Husband cheated on her. She got a divorce. It was a really sad time. And she had a choice. Was she going to trust in God or not? And she wrote this song as a result of it. It's called Steadfast. I will build my house, whether storm or drought, on the rock that does not move. I will set my hope in your love, O Lord, and your faithfulness will prove you are steadfast, steadfast. By the word you spoke, all the starry hosts are called out by name each night. 
In your watchful care, I will rest secure as you lead us with your light. You are steadfast, steadfast. I will not trust in the strength of kings. On your promise, I will stand. I will shout for joy. I will raise my voice. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You are steadfast, steadfast. In the moment of emptiness, all was fulfilled. In the hour of darkness, your light was revealed. In the presence of death, your life was affirmed. In the absence of holiness, you are still God. You are steadfast, steadfast. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the rock that does not move. We thank you that when we bet our lives on you, we win every time. Even though it means that we have to give up the glory. Even though it means that we may be scared as we walk through the fire and the waters. But you promise us in the book of Isaiah that the fire shall not consume you, nor shall the waters overtake us. God, we trust in your promises that you are good, that you are powerful. Help us in the crises that will inevitably come to remember that you are steadfast. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ fully. You've been living that divided heart life and you're sick of it. You're exhausted. Maybe you're just so tired and you're like, I'm ready, God, to give everything to you. If that's you today and you want to put your faith in Christ, I'm going to be here at the front to receive you. If you want to come pray, keep your mask on. You can come up here to the front and you can pray if you want to. Uh, if you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church uh, by faith uh, in Christ or by uh, the fact that you've already put your faith in Christ and be a part of what God's doing here as a member. We believe in church membership here. We invite you to do that now at this time as well. I'll be out in the south lobby after the service to talk if you want to talk, but uh, whatever it is that you need to do in your response to the Lord right now, let's respond in faith by grace that God has given us as we sing our hymn of response, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Let's stand.